0: It's Minnesota Now. I'm Nina Moyni and for Kathy Wurzer. FAFSA delays are causing financial anxiety for some Minnesota college students. And Minnesota cities are brainstorming ways to use $100 million for extreme weather infrastructure. An engineer and a climate specialist will talk about their preparations for climate change. A new history exhibit about the role of Jim Crow here in Minnesota opened over the weekend. We'll learn how racist policies affect the state to this day. Plus, Semisonic's Dan Wilson won big last night at the Grammys. We'll hear about his approach to songwriting. And it's time to ask another Minnesota chef, what's for lunch? A pastry chef is here to talk about her Hmong farming background and her new restaurant. All that and more
1: right after the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. As of now, it does not appear the U.S. House plans to take up a Senate bill addressing border security and foreign assistance. House Speaker Mike Johnson describes the bipartisan compromise as dead on arrival in the House. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports the measure took months to put together and includes money President Biden wants for Ukraine and Israel.
2: The $118 billion bipartisan national security package includes a new requirement for the president to effectively shut down much of the border once the numbers of migrants approaching the U.S. hits an average of 5,000 per day over a week. It also restricts who can claim asylum. Connecticut Democratic Senator
1: Chris Murphy, who is one of the three authors, stressed the goal.
3: The bill reforms the asylum approval process and system so that claims are heard in six months, not 10 years, as is often the case today.
2: The Senate will take a test vote on Wednesday. Former President Donald Trump is calling for Republicans to derail the bill. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News.
1: Southern California continues to be drenched by a major record-breaking storm. NPR's Nathan Rott reports it's far from over.
3: Forecasters say the atmospheric river that's caused flooding and power outages from San Francisco to Los Angeles has stalled over the L.A. area, meaning more rain on already saturated ground. The National Weather Service is calling it an extremely dangerous situation along the Santa Monica Mountains, which run just above the L.A. Basin. Numerous communities are experiencing mud flows and debris flows, and there's a concern that the additional rain could trigger more. Further inland, forecasters are now warning of excessive rainfall in Orange County and parts of the Inland Empire through Tuesday morning. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Ventura, California.
1: Boeing says dozens of its new 737 jets will need additional repairs before they leave the factory. NPR's Joel Rose reports it's the latest quality control problem for Boeing and one of its top suppliers.
4: Boeing says about 50 undelivered jets have improperly drilled holes in their fuselages and will need additional work before leaving the factory. Spirit Aerosystems, the company that makes the fuselage in Wichita, Kansas, identified a problem with its work. Boeing says the production errors are not an immediate flight safety issue, but they will mean more production delays. Federal investigators have been looking at both companies to try to understand why a fuselage panel blew off an Alaska Airlines jet in midair last month. The two companies have clashed over quality and cost. Joel Rose, NPR News.
1: The social media company Snap Inc. says it plans to lay off around 530 employees, roughly 10 percent of its workforce worldwide. According to a regulator filing, the Owner of Snapchat says it expects it will incur charges anywhere from $55 million to $75 million. This is NPR News.
4: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss.
5: For NPR News in the Twin Cities, I'm Emily Reese. The University of Minnesota is getting closer to selecting a new president. Peter Cox reports. The search committee says it has whittled down its list of candidates to four. Those four candidates have been sent to the Board of Regents, who will consider them at a meeting next Friday. The board is expected to choose a finalist or finalists at that meeting. Former President Joan Gable left the university in the spring of 2023. Former Hormel CEO Jeff Ettinger has been interim president since June of that year. The names of the applicants for president are not yet public, but will be made public Friday when the finalists are named. The board will release its schedule of public forums and interviews for the finalists on Friday. I'm Peter Cox. A new survey of Minnesota's manufacturing sector finds some optimism for the next year among business owners in the state. The Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development Survey found businesses expected some positives, including modest expansion in profits and productivity. Deed Economic, Economic Analysis Director Neil Young says the manufacturers have adjusted to deal with supply chain issues. 77 percent expect profits to be the same or higher in 2024. 71 percent expect number of orders to be higher in 2024.
3: 83 percent production expect production levels to be the same or higher in 2024. And 86 percent expect productivity to be the same or higher in 2024.
5: Based on the nearly 250 responses from businesses, Neil says the general outlook is, quote, cautiously optimistic despite areas of concern, including labor availability. This is NPR News. Our top story this
0: afternoon. Students will have to wait even longer for financial aid offers from colleges and universities. The U.S. Department of Education announced another FAFSA delay, and schools won't receive FAFSA data until the first half of March. Meanwhile, Minnesota students are waiting to finalize their college decisions in an already financially turbulent time. So joining us today is B.G. Tucker, the Senior Director of Programs at College Possible Minnesota, an organization that aids students from economically disadvantaged communities. Welcome, B.G. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, BG, let's start off sort of on a technical note here. What's the normal timeline for the FAFSA and and how far has that been pushed back?
2: Sure. So normally the FAFSA opens in October, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It was not open in October this year. Uh, There was a soft launch and it went live right at the end of December with a soft launch carrying into January. Um, And so, you know, as a student, especially students who apply early action or early decision, Mm -hmm. they can usually expect to get a response in January that also includes a financial aid award letter. Um, And so that hasn't really come to fruition. Additionally, you know, we have really encouraged our students to wait in the hopes that the FAFSA would get its glitches out of its system. And with the announcement, as you all know, that is not happening either.
0: And at that time, that's really all they want to know, right, is kind of what their future holds and uh, what's going to be possible for them. Can you illustrate the difficulty of what it's like to fill out the FAFSA? And, And then how does College Possible work with students to help them get through that process?
2: Sure. So, you know, we ask students and families to come in with their taxes or come prepared to answer their tax information. Um, And we're actually hosting in-person FAFSA nights this week. So on Tuesday and Friday, we'll Mm. be opening our office for students and families to come in, receive support. Um, We have translators for a bunch of different languages to help students and their guardians uh, hopefully complete the process. I think the one thing is that Normally, we aspire to have those completed in one sitting because it is so hard to get parents to take time off of work and come in and give an hour to their students um, outside of their schedules. And the way that the FAFSA has gone so far, it's definitely not something that is able to be completed in one sitting.
0: Yeah, that's tough. And say a little more about sort of the impact that this delay is having on students you worked with. You mentioned, you know, having to take time off of work.
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, it, it's pretty discouraging for students and families. We have seen, especially in some of the schools that we support and have had our our trained professionals in staffing, helping staff their fascinates. nights, um, watching a fit parent be unable to log back into a form they were only partially able to complete is really frustrating for them. And then also knowing that they're going to have to go home and maybe try it on their own without that support next to them. Um, the other thing that we're super cognizant of is that We have students and families trying to complete the FAFSA on their own at home and running into roadblock after roadblock. So there's definitely a sense of heightened anxiety and frustration with this form that really is the determining factor on if their family is going to be able to afford college or not.
0: Exactly. So it's already not a super easy process to fill out. And can you just talk about, for those who might not be familiar with FAFSA, kind of what this means specifically for kids who don't come from families with maybe that generational wealth?
2: Yep. So um, this year, students need both guardians to come on as contributors, whether they're a parent or a guardian, um, and help fill out the FAFSA form. They put in their financial information. They use their income tax returns. um, And then at the end of that process, that online form, student gets an estimated understanding of the federal Pell Grant that they'll be receiving and the loans that they're eligible for. And then that really is the base point for the creation of an award package uh, at the different schools that they've been accepted to. And so without the FAFSA being complete, it's very hard for schools to create an offer that is inclusive of all of the federal funding, state funding, and institutional aid that they might be getting to make that school affordable.
0: Sure. And and do you know um, if FAFSA delays might impact the North Star Promise Tuition Program, which relies on that information? And then say what that uh, North Star Promise Tuition Program is.
2: Yep. So North Star is incredibly exciting, right? It's a last dollar scholarship Mm -hmm. that's coming in for students who are going to Minnesota public institutions. So basically a student's aid would be calculated. um, And then if there was a remaining gap or out of pocket cost with the tuition, uh, the North Star Promise Grant would come in and cover that remaining amount for students and families of a certain income eligibility. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's something we are very excited about at College Possible. I would say it's too soon to tell if the distribution of that money is going to be impacted by the delay in the FAFSA because assumingly, we are going to start processing FAFSAs and getting award letters. And since that is a last dollar scholarship, it would be covering the remaining gap. And so I am very hopeful that that will still run without sort of any delay as we think about students planning to enroll in the fall.
0: Okay. And we know delays were already such a problem at the start of the pandemic. People probably have delay fatigue over a lot of things. Do you feel like enough um, is being done to sort of prevent that from happening again?
2: Um, I will say, you know, we have a good amount of college partners, partners in the higher education space, and Mm -hmm. I have been very impressed that they are definitely having conversations around this and thinking about where there can be flexibility for students and families. The last thing you want to have happen is a student get accepted to six schools and then only have an award letter for one school, and that's where they end up going because they didn't know how much those other schools might cost, right? And so I really I'm hopeful that in Minnesota the colleges here are talking And they are thinking about how they can be accommodating to students and families if they aren't getting award letters until the later half of April.
0: Yeah. Are you seeing any instances as you're communicating with families of students who really do have to sort of go a different route?
2: I don't think anyone is prepared to go a different route right now. You know, um, even even with the delay right the hope is that students would be able to receive an award letter in april i think the one of the things we're thinking about is how we're training our counselors to be able to quickly analyze award letters and get concrete information back to students as they start to come in at a delayed space um but again i think it's all going to come down to communication and allowing for flexibility and accommodations for students and families to make it to have the time they need to make a decision um when you think about the pandemic That was another space where that May 1st deadline was extended so that students could have ample time to come and make a financially sound decision with their parents and guardians also on board. Uh, And so it's been done before, and I'm fully confident that higher ed will sort of come to terms with this and help uh, us get to the end to pass that May 1st deadline.
0: Yeah. And what is your sense for maybe more specific universities and and how they would be responding? How do you... How do you, you know, pitch to them that that would be helpful to them as well?
2: Um, I think they're pretty good at listening, especially with how public this has been. You look at the different uh, players in sort of this space and the amount of information that's coming out. uh, While the maybe Department of Ed maybe has not been incredibly transparent, I will say that organizations like NCAN, the National College Attainment Network, have done a great job of reporting on this and keeping everyone abreast of where we are in the process. And so, like, for example, um, we're going to a community partner meeting at the University of Minnesota this week. And that will be a space where people who serve students similar to College Possible students in the Twin Cities will be able to come and ask questions about what is the plan for navigating this. So I think the listening is there. And I think people are eager to make sure that students are making informed decisions.
0: And sort of lastly, I know College Possible doesn't just deal with a FAFSA. <laughs> what's your uh, yeah. What's your biggest advice to to students who are just, you know, thinking about that higher education journey right now?
2: Um, I think the biggest thing is that everyone is going through this struggle, right, with the financial aid piece. And at College Possible, we really, really try and stress the importance of making sound financial aid decisions, and making decisions with all the information that you can have, and putting all that information in front of our students and their parents or guardians. And so, you know, While this process might be frustrating, it's frustrating for everyone right now um, and that there is a ton of support available to them to get them to the finish line of this application process.
0: All right. B.G. Tucker, Senior Director of Programs at College Possible Minnesota. B.G., thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. We really appreciate your time.
2: Thanks for having me.
6: Come rescue me because I'm all alone And I can't fight this darkness on my own Come set me straight cause I've been losing my mind Most things that made me laugh just make me cry Little bit of sun, little bit of sky I think I see it from the corner of my eye Little bit of
0: home. It's time for our Minnesota Music Minute. This is the song Little Bit of Sun from the band Semisonic. The band's leader, Dan Wilson, won last night at the Grammys for Best Country Song with Chris Stapleton. And he's up for an Oscar next month for a song he wrote with John Baptiste for the documentary American Symphony. Stick around for a conversation I had with Dan Wilson about his music later in the show.
6: My sister told me I've been wasting my life Take the feeling I'm running out of time Little bit of sun Little bit of sky I think I see it from the corner of my eye Little bit of hope Little bit of light I only need a little
0: Well, we are just a week out from the start of the 2024 legislative session here in St. Paul. One big focus will be funding infrastructure and building projects around Minnesota. This comes as the state and federal government are spending more money than ever to help communities build up against the effects of extreme weather. That includes $35 million the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency recently announced for cities to update their stormwater systems for a changing climate. It's the first phase of $100 million in grants that were approved by the legislature last year. Moorhead engineer Bob Zimmerman is one of the city officials around the state who are thinking about how to use those funds. And Heidi Roop is involved in this kind of planning as the director of the University of Minnesota's Climate Adaptation Partnership. They're on the line. Welcome, Heidi and Bob. Hi. Good afternoon. Thanks for being here. Well, Heidi, I'll start with you. We know Minnesota is it's getting warmer and wetter, right? So what are the biggest climate aspects to infrastructure that we expect here in Minnesota?
7: Well, you hit the nail on the head. I think right now in this (laughs) wild and weird winter, um, the postcards yeah. of our climate changed world keep on coming, right? Every day mm. I look out in my backyard and think, huh, this is not normal. Mm. <laughs> um, but those warmer, wetter climate conditions um, that we're already experiencing, in addition to what what is chronic across the Midwest, which is this more frequent transition between flood and drought conditions, these are the hallmarks of our changed climate in Minnesota, and those changes bring, uh, spell trouble for our critical infrastructure. Um, and for those scratching your head thinking, what, is, what do they mean by infrastructure? <laughs> um, we're talking roads, bridges, water systems, stormwater systems, um, many of the services um, and facilities that we take advantage of and take for granted uh, every single day.
0: Yeah, and the impacts of climate change are really already showing up in our day-to-day lives and all those sort of areas that you mentioned of our infrastructure. And so you and your colleagues actually work with city planners across the state. And what are you hearing from them in terms of their their concerns?
7: Well, the big questions are how do we plan What future do we plan for and how do we afford the upgrades? And I think critically, how do we do it fast enough um, and smart enough uh, with the uncertainty about what the future climate holds, but the very real realities that most of our communities and municipalities are low on capacity, low on resources, and in many cases, don't have a plan in place to account for future climate Uh, Mm. When we look at our publicly owned wastewater treatment and sewer systems in Minnesota, there are around 800 of them that are publicly owned. Mm. Only 6% of those facilities in our state have a plan in place to respond to the impacts of climate change. Uh, So that's only around 31 of those 800 facilities um, are considering or have a plan in place to proactively attempt to manage these impacts.
0: And Bob, I want to bring you in here. I know Moorhead just had sort of an unusual flood warning uh, last month, and what's you know supposed to be the dead of winter, and you deal with some spring flooding uh, on the Red River pretty routinely. But how could climate change impact the the city's infrastructure in the future?
4: Well, thanks for having me, sure. and you're absolutely right. Uh, extremely odd situation this past this past month where we had three inches of rain. Hmm during the winter and that's and I've never seen that before and it really sort of changes your focus on on what do we expect as we move forward it, mm-hmm. as you'd mentioned we're being in the Red River Valley we're sort of infamous or famous I'm not sure which for <laughs> river flooding events and have spent a lot of time working to mitigate the impacts of river flooding but th- this this effort, Uh, is really more focused on what we call the other type of flooding. And that's where we get these very intense rainstorms normally during the spring and summer and fall and what that can do to infrastructure. It's not so much the impacts just on the storm sewer, but the impacts that carry over to other infrastructure like sanitary sewer and streets and potential risks to private property and public property. So this effort is, in our mind, extremely timely in in that this is an issue that's been hanging out there for a long time. And I think climate change is sort of bringing bringing it to to the forefront where we can start to uh, deal with that and plan for it.
0: Yeah. And I imagine when, Bob, you work sort of, you know, hand in hand with uh, citizens of the area where you live all the time, you probably see the really the real life effects, some of which you mentioned. But this really impacts people's daily lives, right?
4: It, it sure does, and and I think the state's grant program to help some of this planning get underway, and now the state's program to uh, to help to start to fund some of these projects will definitely have a, a real impact on people's lives in that. There are opportunities now with those resources for us to study and evaluate what we need to do for some of these systems, some of these infrastructure systems that have have been in place for 50, 60, maybe in some cases, 100 years.
0: Yeah. Heidi, I just want to zoom out a bit. What are some of the possible solutions that you all are looking at for just communities to be able to withstand some of the extreme weather? And then, like, is it too late? I mean, is this something that could have gotten going a little bit sooner? What are your thoughts there?
7: Well, as a climate scientist, of course, we <laughs> would love if we had done things sooner, but yeah. we are where we are, um, and we need to get plans in place. I think that's an important starting point. Um, but certainly, given the urgency and the stress on systems, and you know, as Bob's mentioned, the, many of our stormwater systems and other critical infrastructure are reaching the end of what we call their useful life, mm-hmm. um, so are in need of upgrades. Um, I think the main thing we need to think about um, as we do any of these investments, small or large, in in any form of infrastructure, is that we're factoring future climate into the design mm. um, of this infrastructure. Um, I know a lot of folks say, well, that's so expensive. Um, there are, of course, costs to system failure, um, not just financial, but on communities and the health and well being um, of our communities. Um, there's impacts on commerce and the economy. Um, so I think what are the solutions? There's, there's planning, um, there's partnering in ways that make sure that say, organizations like mine are providing useful and usable science um, where it's most needed so that you can size systems appropriately for a future climate. And I think there are a range of of different solutions in combination that think about how we not only upgrade our infrastructure, but bring co-benefits like tree plantings and green roofs, thinking about permeable pavement, other strategies that say keep water out of our stormwater and wastewater systems, um, but in the ground and and serving our landscapes and ecosystems. So there's a whole range of things. And we also know um, in our state for every dollar invested in natural climate solutions, like those I mentioned, we can receive a benefit of around $8.55 by mid-century. And that's from a study uh, produced by the Nature Conservancy last year.
0: And what do you see as some of the, the barriers to making those types of solutions happen?
7: Well, I think, as I said before, we there are a lot of gaps both in budgets and staffing and time. Um, wow. It's not, a, you know, saying make a plan is actually um, a very large undertaking, uh, making a plan that factors in future climate risk, um, probably even a further challenge. I know Bob can speak to the efforts um, that they've gone through to actually do this planning um, to position themselves for implementation. Um, but really, it's access to information, but critically funding. Um, even wow. if you know what parts of your system are failing, where are the resources to proactively manage those risks, and how do we spread that over time? Um, Very few communities can rip up all their roads and stormwater systems, um, but how do we get things in place to do iterative upgrades and resizing of our infrastructure for our climate change future?
0: Yeah, it's a lot to tackle, and it impacts everybody. Bob, I don't know if you communicate with people from other cities who are in a similar role as you, but what what do you say, what do you all talk about or what advice do you give one another?
4: Well, you know, I think the, the, the approach is maybe changing uh, a little bit from what it might have been years ago where before we, and we do now, we have a very detailed computer model of our system and mm. we can run different kinds of events and look at the flooding that takes place throughout the city. And years ago, we might have approached a problem like this and just said, well, we have street flooding. That's a problem. We just need to upsize the pipe, put a bigger pipe in. Well, as Heidi mentioned, that's really expensive and Mm. probably not manageable. So we sort of change the focus now to what is, you know, what is the risk? So, okay, we have a big rain event. The storm sewer can't handle all of that rain for a period of time. We have some street flooding what's the risk associated with that in this particular location? Is it, does it affect a home or a public structure? Does it actually cause damage to that structure or is it in this particular intersection? Maybe it's a, you know, it's a short-term flooding, maybe an hour or two, the intersection's flooded. You almost think about it like a blizzard, in a sense. When when a blizzard comes, we stay off the roads and we're inconvenienced for a few hours, but hmm. we don't necessarily have damage. Well, in this case, if we can manage the risk to those places where we do have damage, then we can try to approach it at the most reasonable cost. I mean, it's still going to be costly, but at least we can focus our efforts a little bit better.
0: And lastly, just Heidi, are there any specific areas of the state that you um, point toward the most or have the most concern about? Does it have to do with maybe how close you are to different bodies of water?
7: That's a good question. I think every part of the state is facing its own combination of climate risks. Um, We have hundreds of thousands of facilities and roads and commercial buildings at risk of flooding alone um, is just isolating one impact. So um, I think, you know, I, I worry about everywhere. Um, but if I were to hone in, I think one of the, the things we need to really factor in as we think about how we resource communities, how we make sure there's sufficient implementation dollars and planning, is that our smaller communities across the state often carry a heavy heavier burden for system failures and system upgrades? Sure. Um, sure. so right, if you think infrastructure is above your pay grade, just know that the costs of climate change on our infrastructure are often borne by us, ratepayers mm-hmm. and taxpayers. And so that is especially sure. true in the absence of proactive state and municipal investments. So I think mm-hmm. we need to be thinking critically about how we resource our smaller communities because the burden of, of actually having facilities is often borne disproportionately by those communities when it comes down to dollars and cents. Thank you for that. Bob
0: Zimmerman, Moorhead City Engineer and Heidi Roop, Director of the University of Minnesota's Climate Adaptation Partnership. Thank you both so much for your work and for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.
5: And we are going to take a look at the news headlines now with Emily Reese. Hi, Emily. Hi, Nina. King Charles III has been diagnosed with a form of cancer and has begun treatment, Buckingham Palace says. The palace says the cancer is not related to the king's recent treatment for a benign prostate condition. Officials said a separate issue of concern was noted during that treatment last month. The palace didn't say what form of cancer the 75-year-old monarch has. The BBC reports the king will suspend public events but continue his role as head of state. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with Saudi Arabia's crown prince at the start of his fifth visit to the Middle East since the outbreak of the war in Gaza. He hopes to press ahead with a potential ceasefire deal and post-war planning while tamping down regional tensions. Hamas and Israel are publicly at odds over key elements of a potential truce. Israel has dismissed U.S. calls for a path to a Palestinian state, and Iran's militant allies in the region have shown little sign of being deterred by U.S. strikes. Forest fires in central Chile have killed at least 122 people in densely populated areas over the past three days. Hundreds remain missing. The fires started on Friday on the eastern edge of the city of Viña del Mar, a coastal resort city about 70 miles northwest of Santiago. At least 370 people have been reported missing in Viña del Mar, which has about 300,000 residents. The fires appeared to have diminished this morning. Chile's president, Gabriel Boric, says that at least... 3,000 homes had been burnt down in the area, some estimates say up to 6,000. And a powerful storm fueled by an atmospheric river is pounding Southern California, causing widespread flooding, knocking out power and leading to evacuation orders in some areas. The slow-moving system is dumping heavy rain on Southern California today, and officials warn of potentially devastating flooding. The L.A. Times says Pasadena could get 10 inches of rain today, with about 6 inches expected in downtown Los Angeles, which got 4 inches just yesterday.
0: Nina? Thank you so much, Emily. Well, February, as we all know, is Black History Month, a reminder to look back at Black Americans' long fight for full rights and citizenship. Twin Cities PBS released a documentary about that fight against restrictive racial real estate covenants. In 2019, it's
7: called Jim Crow of the North. This mob of over 100 people marched on an African-American's house in October of 1909. try to stop this family from moving in. The leading men of Minneapolis, as the newspaper called them, these are not the kind of people who want
5: to be involved in mob violence. And they don't have to, because they have other tools that they can use. And there's this tool
7: that they become aware of, it's called a racial covenant. And so just a few months after this confrontation, you see the first racial covenant appear in a Minneapolis property.
5: And this is where you first see this racial language.
7: Caucasians only, Aryans only, no Negroes or no members of African blood or descent.
5: 100% of them were aimed at black people.
7: In many ways, racial covenants, this is kind of ground zero of residential segregation. And the United States and racism have a very, very long history, but this particular deployment of racism is fairly new. And this idea was really made material through instruments like racial covenants.
3: The law of the streets, the law of the courts working in consort to discourage blacks from moving into white neighborhoods.
6: Hmm.
0: That last voice you heard was the voice of Minnesota historian and author Bill Green. He spoke this weekend at the opening of a new exhibit at the Minnesota Historical Society created to further the state's conversation about Reconstruction and Jim Crow. The exhibit is called Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow, and Bill Green is here now to talk about it. Bill, welcome back to Minnesota Now.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. So you've had a chance now to see uh, the Minnesota Historical Society's exhibit on Jim Crow. Uh, what did you see? What stood out to you?
3: Well, um, it, it, it was, it's a fine display. I hope everybody gets a chance to see it.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but it was also an opportunity to sort of see contrast between uh, how discrimination existed in America at the time, both up north and in in the south. Um, there's also uh, hidden underneath the story is uh, a notion that that uh, that the North was very different from the South in mm. terms of discrimination. And Minnesota also had a reputation for being uh, racially progressive, notwithstanding the existence of of discrimination of housing and things of that nature. Um, but what's interesting about that is that policymakers, business leaders and whatnot, who supported um, the black community, um, provided funding and resources for uh, activities to occur for blacks could, where they could celebrate their race and their culture. Um, these same owners, these same uh, policy makers, these same business owners, uh, discriminated against hiring blacks. So you had those who were in favor of supporting blacks, but not to the point of employing them.
6: Hmm. Uh,
3: and I think that that's sort of characteristic of a, of a place where um, the policymakers are mindful of how any sort of support for blacks could alienate them from a, a white base.
6: Hmm. Um,
3: the attitudes of racial progress, um though embraced by leaders of the community uh white leaders of the community uh were not pushed down to the man on the street so uh, Mm. you have oftentimes a a bifurcated society or sensibility towards race blacks could uh, could could see a law passed that would ban um lynching for example 1921 um but within a matter of a couple years the the sponsors of that bill, with the support of political leaders across, could not purchase a home, in in a white neighborhood, and that was uh, that occurred without any sort of pushback on the part of policymakers. So, you know, Minnesota's history of race is one of paradox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's the main thing I want to characterize here.
0: Yeah, and I think it's so wonderful uh, what you said about. You know, it makes a lot of sense that a law can change on the books, but if you don't have the buy-in from everyone to follow that law, then that progress is really only on a piece of paper. And I I know that uh, you know, it's so interesting. Minnesota became a state right around the time of Reconstruction, right? And and we know Reconstruction, of course, was the period following the Civil War in which there was these attempts to sort of rectify the issues of slavery, really for the first time. Uh, in your research, did you find some stories of families who were really thriving in those in those fifty years post Civil War? In in Minnesota. Tell me about them.
3: Oh, yes. I mean, that's the other side of, of the Black experience in Minnesota. You have, even though discrimination existed, Black people learned um, to, 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 well, they always knew how to create their own community, hmm. and uh, they created their own institutions. Um, the church became very, very key in creating a community of, of, of solidarity, in effect, uh, it also became a source of political enfranchisement, or, or at least voice. Um, political leaders would seek out the support of members of a black church, for example. Uh, and, and you also had the evolution of a black middle class forming. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, that was oftentimes due to the fact that the black community was growing large enough for, for African Americans to support their own businesses. Uh, to support their own restaurants and things of that nature. So there's a a thriving community evolving at the time of discrimination. Uh, And it also relied on the black community sort of um, being discreet with their successes, Hmm. because you did not want to necessarily draw attention to, uh, to, to yourself from unwanted sources.
0: And I do wonder how you see sort of that time period and everything you described. How did that set the stage for black people living in Minnesota today?
3: Well, um, you still have a lot of the inequities that Mm -hmm. existed um, back then that still exist today. Um, The the issues between African-Americans and the police, for example, that Mm -hmm. was a problem. That was not unique, or that is not unique to today, but existed back at the turn of the century. Um, educa- the issues of education—excuse <clears throat> me—African Americans were were in schools, but they they often they they were not taught by African American teachers, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so on and so forth. There there are different ways in which blacks were beginning to venture into. Um, their own uh, celebration of who they were, businesses, restaurants, things of that nature. But they they did that within the context of, of discrimination. Sure. Uh, and so.
0: So, sure. And I, I do wonder, you know, as you take a look back, you're so well versed in history. But for people just attending, you know, maybe this exhibit or, or watching the film, uh, what do you hope people take away from taking a look at the past?
3: Well, I think that um, first of all, exhibits are important. they're they're absolutely important. Mm-hmm. They remind us of graphic ways of what happened in the past.
6: Yeah.
3: On the other hand, I think the exhibit in and of itself is insufficient in really uh, educating the public and and bringing the kind of dialogue that you need. There has to be context, and mm-hmm. uh, so oftentimes, Um, just the presentation of imagery from the past becomes one-dimensional. And it also conveys the sense that um, not much more needs to be done because, after all, black men could vote. Well, black Hmm. women could not. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's a question of really looking at why is disparity a factor and why does it continue? The images from the display can serve as a springboard for those kinds of discussions. It can refine and um, um, elevate uh, the kinds of issues that we need to address.
0: Absolutely.
3: That will not
0: Absolutely. Minnesota author and historian Bill Green, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lots of great music today. I love it. It's Minnesota Now. I'm Nina Moinian for Kathy Wurzer. You're listening to the song White Horse by Chris Stapleton, which took home a Grammy last night for the Best Country Song. And Minnesota's own Dan Wilson is sharing that award. He co-wrote the song with Stapleton. Dan Wilson is the front man for Semisonic, and when he's not writing music for his band, he's collaborating with a lot of big stars. In fact, Wilson has two other Grammys for co-writing with The Chicks and Adele. Wilson is also up for an Oscar next month for co-writing the song It Never Went Away with John Baptiste for his documentary. In October, I spoke to Wilson about songwriting. I started by asking him what it's like to see other people enjoying and finding meaning in his music.
6: It's funny because when I was when I was starting out, I was I experienced it from the other side. I I you know I was obsessed with certain artists and I listened so carefully to their <laughs> music and I and I was so into it. It it didn't really occur to me that I could turn the tables and be the person that provided that experience for other people Hmm. that that was a slow process and i almost only really awakened to it in in the middle of my music career i didn't really realize that that's what it really was about was that that two-way street that that is being a music and a music listener and a music maker
0: what does it feel like when people tell you how meaningful your music has been for them and just their memories
6: it's kind of surreal it's kind of it's a little bit crazy, but I <laughs> I, I feel happy. I, you know, sometimes people will say that a, a certain song of mine got them through a really tough time and then they'll describe the tough time and I'll mm. almost feel like unworthy of being part of that Aww. healing process because, you know, sometimes it's, it's just people will say these super important things. I just feel kind of honored to be helpful in that way.
0: Yeah. And I mean, when I think about all the different styles of artists that you've made music with, it's almost sort of like you're like a songwriting chameleon. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you try to write for them from another perspective? Or how do you write for different folks?
6: I'd, I'm would i not sure if I'm a, I'm a chamele, chameleon. Um, I, I think uh, what I do is I try to kind of bring myself to the session, my own sense of mm. what might be a good idea, what might be maybe what what I'd like to hear them say in a song, my collaborator, mm. um, what I'd like to hear from them as, as a fan almost. Yeah. So I, I, I'm still very much myself in mm. the sessions. I'm just more focused on let's make it as much you as we possibly can right now, not me.
0: You grew up in St. Louis Park, but you live in Los Angeles these days. I bet the weather's pretty nice there. Uh, <laughs> how connected yeah. are you still uh, with the, the Minneapolis music scene here?
6: Oh um, well, I get back as often as I can. I was I was actually in Minneapolis uh, visiting my family uh, this past weekend, oh, okay. and um, I have uh, a lot of musician friends still in the Twin Cities, and you know either just friend, friends for friends' sake, or sometimes collaborative uh, friends as well. So that's still part, big part of my life. Sure.
0: One of the neat things um, on Minnesota Now, when, when they have artists on, we like to ask them for a song that's inspired them. And so we asked you, and you chose the 1976 song Coyote by Joni Mitchell, a storyteller for sure. Let's listen a bit of that.
1: No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studios, and you're up early on your ranch. You'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending, and I'll just be getting home with my real no concrete... Hmm.
0: So what is it uh, that made you choose that Tony Mitchell song?
6: Well, that's that Joni Mitchell song I, I first heard when I was a a teenager and i was making a lot of music and i had heard mostly pretty you know pop pop things the beatles and great stuff um carol king uh, motown and um that song was just so different from all the other songs and it was such a it was all about the story and the kind of atmosphere and and later in life i i, I like i when i was you know 16 when i first heard the song i didn't really know about wanderlust or even leaving Mm -hmm. home or traveling and later that's the song's theme of being like a a troubadour a wanderer uh uh you know traveling the world and making music I, i didn't even realize that's what it was about at first but then i related to it on that level so it's just it's just a beautiful thing
0: Again, that was Grammy winner Dan Wilson. Also, Joni Mitchell performed at the Grammys for the first time ever last night. The 80-year-old had a moving performance of her song, Both Sides Now.
6: Uh,
0: Lots of good music. It's noon. Maybe you're thinking about eating lunch right now. (laughs) And here in the studio, at least, food is always on our minds. So we're continuing our series called What's for Lunch?, where we ask acclaimed chefs around the state what they're cooking and eating for some inspiration. Diane Mua is a five-time James Beard Award nominee for her work as a pastry chef at restaurants like Spoon and Stable and La Belle Vie in the Twin Cities. But now, Diane is about to open a brand new restaurant of her own featuring Hmong French cuisine in Northeast Minneapolis. She's calling it Diane's Place. And she's here now to chat. Diane, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So nice to be with you. Let's talk about food. Tell me about uh, the food that you you most like to prepare and and that you most like to eat.
8: Gosh, I love just simple, home-cooked food. Yeah. I mean, if it's, you know, my freezer is full of, I've been working a lot on on my restaurant, so my parents will come up and I have a freezer full of meat from the farm, you know, and That to me is really good food, whether it's just a chicken boiled with some mung herbs or, you know, pork just cooked up with some bitter melon. It's just simple cooked food.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned farming. I understand that had a really big influence on, you know, your younger years and your life. Tell me about your new place. Congratulations and sort of how how your past kind of inspires your new restaurant.
8: Um, You know, I'm just trying to think back of like, what makes me complete and what makes me happy. And it's, you know, it's growing up and, you know, when your parents cook for you and you're having a warm meal and it warms your soul. And so doing the restaurant, I mean, it's taking both worlds of, you know, I've been in the industry for 20 years now hmm. and taking what I've, you know, grew up with and taking what I've learned in my whole, in this industry and mashing the two together. You know, I'm going to have pastries along with, we're going to have, you know, service, food, drinks. That's the whole package right there for me.
0: Yeah, and why did you decide to name it Diane's Place?
8: So I decided to call, call it Diane's Place because I've been thinking about names, <laughs> and I wanted to do some kind of... I want to honor my parents. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know, and then just thinking back, and Diane's Place, um, Diane was the name that, when my parents came to the U.S., the sponsor. mm mm-hmm. um, Gave my name, and so my parents always said, however long I've been in the U.S., that's how long. Um, that however long I've been in the U.S., they've been in the U.S. That's how old I am. So
6: hmm.
8: I wanted, and then Diane's place was like the first American name. So I, it was just a lot of stuff, and the word, Di- the name Diane, just it, it's so much history there for my family um, of coming to the, my parents coming to the states and. So just thinking back, I've, like, tried to mash up names, doing so much. But at the end of the day, Diane's Place is home, not just for me, but for my family.
0: That's beautiful. And it's so much of um, food is a mashing up of different cultures and different experiences. And I understand that you're going to have a lot of fishes or dishes from your own Hmong heritage and vegetables grown in your family's farm?
8: Oh, my God. My parents are—they have— four greenhouses right now and oh, they're just wow. so hyped on what should we grow for you tell us let us know and I'm like <laughs> lots of lemongrass lots of peppers <laughs> um you know just letting them know what I want and i I have this vision of having this beautiful lemongrass plant in mm. the building and my dad's like we're ready you just tell us how you want it we'll make it happen for you so it's really exciting to have my parents be a part of this too and of course, all my siblings are really excited, too. Everyone's like, okay, what's the date? You know, So we can mark it off. We all want to be there.
0: Yeah, and so uh, what is the date? No, I'm just kidding. I understand yes. you're calling from the, the kitchen of your new space over there in Northeast. So, I mean, what's going on over there right now? A lot of hustle and bustle. Do you have everyone from the family helping out? Or are you putting them to work? You know,
8: <laughs> not yet. This coming week, we have some equipment coming in. I had to call my dad my brother. They're going to come. My brother's helping us paint. He's a professional painter. Wow. So I'm putting him to work, and he has been offering to help. So, But my kids, I mean, my kids are big, and they've been in the place hmm. helping take stickers off things, sweeping, mopping. They've been amazing. So it's like all I am is I'm sitting on my computer, you know, setting up interviews. So I'm quite busy, so it's really nice to have family to help with the things that I can't get to.
0: Yeah, restaurants are notoriously a family business. Um oh, is there a yeah. favorite dish that you have or one that you wanna describe for us?
8: You know, it's so crazy. I'm trying to think of what I've been eating so much and we've been testing out the mung sausage. So mm. Lori Hill Provision, who is in the building with us, we've been testing out mung sausage since September. Wow. <laughs> and so like every week we're like, you know, we're like eating it, tasting it, how we how we can make it different. Um, the course, the grind of the meat, you know, how do we add sour to it? So we've been having lots of monk sausage. We've been eating it for breakfast, rice, and just like an over easy egg on it. Um, and that's been a really comfort, you know, at first I'm like, God, we're going to be tired of eating this, but <laughs> we haven't. It's, it's, we still eat it. And when we're really busy, me and my general manager, we're eating instant, instant noodle. I mean, sure. we have to have instant noodle.
0: Yeah. So I actually, one of my questions here, since the segment's called What's for Lunch, is what's for lunch? Or what are you doing today? Sausage or noodles?
8: <laughs> today? Today was sausage and eggs. Okay. <laughs> You're really
0: perfecting that dish. I love it. Um, any other dishes that, you know, maybe have more of the French or more of the Hmong influence? How do you go about mashing those up?
8: You know, that's going to be shown more in the pastries, too. You know, okay. the, all, the, all the croissants, all the um you know i'm taking i'm trying to take one of my dad's dish and incorporate it into uh, a danish mm. and how do you you know how do you turn it into maybe it's a fancy hot pocket i don't know but just taking lamination and making beautiful pastries and adding a little Mung flair flavors in there inspired you know our traditional inspired dishes how do you incorporate the two so that's been the it's easy to have it side by side, but how do you put it together and make something really great out of it? And so that's what I've been working on.
0: Yeah. And of all the the places that you have worked and and been a part of it, does it feel different to kind of have this be your own place and literally Diane's place?
8: Yeah, it feels good. It feels good. We've been busy and I'm really excited. Like we're counting the days like, okay, is this really happening? I mean, the the place is filled right now and we've been very uh fortunate because it's an vent space I'm running in here too. Mm-hmm. So we've been you know, we have speed racks and ovens and everything's here just waiting for construction to be done and just put it in place. Um but yeah it's really it's yeah. it's good to have your own place. I mean I miss by I can't wait to be in the kitchen again. Like I really miss being in the kitchen mm. Um, so I'm really, I'm already like have a game plan of like, okay, first thing we're going to do is we're going to test out this dough, test out this, you know, yeah. test out this dish. So and I'm remind me again, to, like, get the, get uh, when are you going
0: to open? Just remind me again.
8: We're looking at, we don't have a date yet. Okay. We're looking at March and we'll announce it the, the minute we do.
0: Okay. And where people can find you is uh, in Northeast.
8: Yes. Northeast in the food building.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Twin Cities pastry chef Diane Mua. Look for her Hmong French restaurant, Diane's Place, coming to northeast Minneapolis soon. Good luck with everything, Diane.
8: Thank you so much.
0: And thank you all for listening. Want to remind you, NPR's Winter Member Drive does start... Next week, don't wait. You can help kickstart the member drive with an early donation. When you donate, pick up your year-round Minnesota State Parks vehicle permit as our thanks. Start your monthly gift now at nprnews.org. NPR's Winter Member Drive couldn't do it without our listeners. This is public radio funded by listeners like you.
4: Support comes from Turbo Tim's Anything Automotive with auto repair shops in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and West St. Paul. You can schedule appointments and meet the Shopcats and crew at turbotims.com.
1: Programming is supported by St. Paul Academy and Summit School, offering customized admission tours for prospective students and their families. Learn more at spa.edu, shaping the minds and the hearts of the people who will change the world.
0: You're listening to NPR News 91.1 FM, KNOW, Minneapolis, St. Paul, member-supported public radio. Thank you. Right now in the Twin Cities, it's 40 degrees under partly sunny skies. The rest of the day, looks like it'll be headed more into the cloudy territory. Highs will be all the way in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny in the morning, then getting cloudier. Highs expected to be all the way in the low 50s tomorrow, as well as for your Wednesday. Thanks for listening. It's one o'clock.